Hello, this is Dean Hess, editor of Respiratory Care. I'm here with Sarah Forge to bring you the August 2011 podcast. Sarah, let's get started. Our first paper is Diagnostic Accuracy of Clinical Pulmonary Infection Score for Ventilator-Associated Pneumonia, a Meta-Analysis, is by Shan and colleagues. The objective of this study was to assess the diagnostic accuracy of the Clinical Pulmonary Infection Score, or CPIS, in the diagnosis of ventilator-associated pneumonia in mechanically ventilated patients. The authors searched PubMed and the Cochrane database and included only studies that compared CPIS with quantitative microbiological analysis of samples for diagnosing ventilator-associated pneumonia. Thirteen studies met the inclusion criteria. The pooled estimates for sensitivity and specificity for CPIS were 65% and 64%, respectively. The combined diagnostic odds ratio was 4.85, and the area under the curve was 0.748. The authors conclude that the diagnostic performance of the CPIS for ventilator-associated pneumonia is moderate. The CPIS has been suggested as a simple approach to diagnose VAP. In this meta-analysis, Sean et al. found that the diagnostic performance of the CPIS for VAP diagnosis is moderate. However, because the CPIS is simple and easy to perform, it may still be useful in diagnosing VAP. As Kolov points out in his editorial, although the diagnosis of VAP can be confusing and problematic, relatively simple protocols can be developed to accomplish the goals of early recognition and prompt treatment. Comparison of a novel lycra endotracheal tube cuff to standard polyvinyl chloride cuff and polyurethane cuff for fluid leak prevention is by Kolobau et al. In vitro, they tested six of each of a new prototype Lycra cuff, a Malincrot high-low tube with a polyvinyl chloride cuff, and a Kimberly-Clark microcuff tube with a polyurethane cuff. They tested the tubes for leakage in an acrylic model of the trachea with a cuff inflation pressure of 20 centimeters of water. They poured 15 milliliters of methylene blue colored water into the acrylic tube above the cuff and observed for leakage over 24 hours. The lycra cuff had no folds upon inflation in the mock trachea and completely prevented fluid leakage for 24 hours. The authors conclude that their lycra cuff provided complete tracheal sealing in vitro. Continuing with the theme of VAP is the paper by Kalabaugh. High-volume, low-pressure endotracheal tube cuffs form folds along its contact with the trachea, allowing mucus leakage into the lungs, which is a potential source of VAP. These authors report evaluation of a thin-walled endotracheal tube cuff made of lycropolyurethane. This cuff provided complete tracheal sealing in an in vitro model. As Fisher points out in his editorial, not only do we need to know whether or not this design reduces microaspiration in vivo, but we also need to know if it is cost-effective before widespread adoption. Next, we have the paper by Scala and colleagues, Increased Number and Expertise of Italian Respiratory High-Dependency Care Units, the Second National Survey. 
They conducted a national survey to analyze the changes in the past 10 years in the number, structures, staff, procedures, diagnoses, and outcomes in Italian respiratory high-dependency care units that satisfy the European Respiratory Society's criteria for high-level, intermediate-level, and low-level care. The number of respiratory high-dependency care units increased from 26 to 44. The relative prevalence among all units increased only for the low-level units. In 2007, a higher percentage of Italian respiratory high-dependency care units were located within respiratory wards than outside of respiratory wards, and the physician-to-patient mean ratio and the nurse-to-patient mean ratio per shift were lower. Admissions for only monitoring decreased, and admissions for active interventions increased. Active interventions included non-invasive ventilation, invasive ventilation, weaning from invasive ventilation, and tracheal decannulation. There was a reduction in the percentage of COPD patients, and an increase in the percentage of patients with neuromyopathies and de novo hypoxemia. The authors conclude that there has been an increase in the number and expertise of Italian respiratory high-dependency care units, with a shift towards less expensive care and greater complexity of interventions and patient dysfunctions. Scala and colleagues conducted a national survey to analyze the changes in a number of factors related to respiratory high-dependence care units in Italy. Between 1997 and 2007, there was an increase in the number and expertise of these units with a greater complexity of interventions and patient dysfunctions. With the current focus on less expensive care in North America and elsewhere around the world, there will likely be greater need for these units. As Ferrer points out in his editorial, the results of this study reflect the high level of expertise and skills of Italian physicians in managing patients on non-invasive ventilation as well as other respiratory interventions. Performance of the cough assist insufflation exufflation device in the presence of an endotracheal tube or tracheostomy tube, a bench study, is by Guerin and colleagues. The authors measured peak expiratory flow and pressure at the airway opening in a lung model during insufflation exufflation with a cough assist at three set pressures without and with different sizes of endotracheal tubes and tracheostomy tubes, two compliance settings, and two resistance settings. With a compliance of 30 millimeters per centimeters of water and zero resistance, the slope of the control relationship between peak flow and pressure was significantly greater than during any conditions with an endotracheal tube or tracheostomy tube. With a compliance of 60 milliliters per centimeter of water, the highest set pressure values were not achieved and some relationships departed from linearity. The authors conclude that artificial airways significantly reduced peak expiratory flow during insufflation-exufflation with the cough assist. The narrower the inner diameter of the artificial airway, the lower the peak flow for a given expiratory pressure. 
The cough assist is a mechanical insufflator exufflator to assist airway secretion clearance in patients with an ineffective cough. It is most commonly used by mask in patients who do not have an artificial airway. Garan et al. conducted a bench study to evaluate its performance in the presence of an endotracheal tube or tracheostomy tube. Although the artificial airway significantly reduced peak expiratory flow with the cough assist, it might still be effective. I agree with Toussaint that the use of insufflation exufflation will likely increase in common years in patients with artificial airways. Our next paper is by Rupel and colleagues, and its title is Multi-Wavelength Pulse Oximeter is Not Suitable for Adjusting DLCO Measurements. The authors hypothesized that there would be no significant difference between the invasive and non-invasive hemoglobin and carboxyhemoglobin measurements for adjusting DLCO. In patients referred to their university hospital for DLCO testing, they simultaneously took arterial blood gas samples and measured hemoglobin and carboxyhemoglobin with the RAD57 pulse oximeter. They compared the differences in predicted DLCO to a clinical threshold of 3 milliliters per minute per millimeter mercury. Hemoglobin measured with a pulse oximeter differed from hemoglobin measured via arterial blood analysis. Carboxyhemoglobin measured by the pulse oximeter did not differ significantly from carboxyhemoglobin measured via arterial blood analysis, but there was wide variability. There were small but significant differences in the adjusted predicted DLCO depending on whether arterial or pulse oximeter values were used. The limits of agreement for pulse oximetry adjusted DLCO exceeded the clinical threshold of 3 milliliters per minute per millimeter of mercury for hemoglobin adjustments and combined hemoglobin and carboxyhemoglobin. Predicted DLCO values differed by more than 3 milliliters per minute per millimeter of mercury in 17% of patients. The authors conclude that pulse oximetry may be of limited usefulness for adjusting either predicted or measured DLCO values, but might be useful to screen patients for invasive testing, particularly if the DLCO is close to the lower limit of normal. DLCO can be affected by abnormal hemoglobin or carboxyhemoglobin levels. The predicted DLCO can be adjusted to reflect abnormal hemoglobin or carboxyhemoglobin levels. Ripple et al. evaluated whether a new pulse oximeter, the Massimo RAD57, can accurately measure hemoglobin and carboxyhemoglobin non-invasively. They found that pulse oximetry may be of limited usefulness for adjusting either predicted or measured DLCO, but might be useful to screen patients for invasive testing. respiratory therapists into the neonatal pediatric environment, a survey of educators and managers, is by Walsh et al. A survey was distributed to members of the AARC Education Specialty Section and members of the AARC Manager's Specialty Section. The survey included 15 questions scored on a 5-point Likert scale. The majority of respondents were either affiliated with or worked for urban, not-for-profit, non-government organizations. 
63% disagreed that an associate's degree respiratory therapy program and 42% disagreed that a bachelor's degree program adequately prepares a new RT to work in the neonatal pediatric critical care environment immediately after graduation. 71% strongly agreed that children's hospital respiratory care environments should have a dedicated respiratory therapy educator. 76% agreed that simulation is an effective tool for training RTs for neonatal pediatric critical care. 65% agreed that RTs should be required to take an exam at the end of orientation period to verify competency. 59% strongly agreed that neonatal pediatric RTs should have the National Board for Respiratory Care Registered Respiratory Therapist RRT credential. The authors conclude that there appears to be a discrepancy in the educational preparation expected prior to entering the acute care neonatal pediatric environment and what training methods are most appropriate and cost-effective for orienting new RTs to this specialized environment. A dedicated respiratory therapy educator is valued. Simulation is considered an effective tool for training RTs and provides training opportunities that otherwise would not be available. The neonatal pediatric specialty certification exam appears to be recognized as a valid method of determining understanding and verifying competence. Neonatal pediatric respiratory care is recognized as a unique and complex area of clinical practice. Walsh and colleagues surveyed neonatal pediatric respiratory care educators and managers to gain insight into the adequacy of preparing RTs to enter the neonatal pediatric environment, the length of orientation necessary to achieve a base level of competency, and the methods used to train new practitioners. They found that a dedicated respiratory therapy educator is valued, simulation is considered an effective tool for training, and the neonatal pediatric certification exam is recognized as a valid method of verifying competence. Next, we have the paper, CO2 Response and Duration of Weaning from Mechanical Ventilation by Rorich et al. The objective of this study was to investigate the relationship between CO2 response and the duration of weaning in mechanically ventilated patients ready for a spontaneous breathing trial. The authors conducted a CO2 response test and measured maximum inspiratory pressure and maximum expiratory pressure in 102 non-consecutive ventilated patients. Between the prolonged and non-prolonged weaning groups, the authors found differences in hypercapnic drive response and hypercapnic ventilatory response. Assessed with the Cox Proportional Hazards Model, both hypercapnic drive response and hypercapnic ventilatory response were independent variables associated with the duration of weaning. The hazard ratio of weaning success was 16.7 times higher if hypercapnic drive response was greater than 0.19 centimeters of water per millimeter of mercury and 6.3 times higher if hypercapnic ventilatory response was greater than 0.15 liters per minute per millimeter of mercury. The authors conclude that decreased CO2 response, as measured by hypercapnic drive response and hypercapnic ventilatory response, are associated with prolonged weaning. 
The CO2 response test measures the hypercapnic drive response and the hypercapnic ventilatory response. The CO2 response and duration of weaning from mechanical ventilation were evaluated by Rorich and colleagues. Both hypercapnic drive response and hypercapnic ventilatory response were independent variables associated with the duration of weaning. The authors suggest that bedside measurement of CO2 response might identify patients who need prolonged weaning and might benefit from tracheostomy. Given the complexity of this test, however, further study is needed before it can be recommended as standard therapy. Desaturation during the three-minute step test predicts impaired 12-month outcomes in adult patients with cystic fibrosis is by Holland and colleagues. The objective of this study was to determine the feasibility and acceptability of the three-minute step test as a test of exercise capacity in adults with cystic fibrosis and whether test performance is associated with 12-month clinical outcomes. The authors recruited 101 adult patients in stable health. The three-minute step test was conducted with a standardized protocol that included a 15-centimeter high step and external pacing at 30 steps per minute. With multiple linear regression analyses, they assessed the relationship between step test performance and change in FEV1 and hospital days at 12 months. Only 42% of subjects with mild CF achieved 70% of the predicted maximum heart rate during the 3-minute step test, compared to 77% of those with FEV1 less than 60% of predicted. The 22 patients who desaturated to less than 90% during the 3-minute step test had a larger number of hospital days over the following 12 months than those who did not. Those who desaturated also had a greater FEV1 decline. Desaturation during the 3-minute step test was an independent predictor of both FEV1 decline and days spent in the hospital. The authors conclude that desaturation during the 3-minute step test is associated with long-term pulmonary deterioration and more hospital days in adults with CF. The 3-minute step test may be a useful screening test for patients with moderate to severe CF lung disease who require increased intervention and monitoring. The 3-minute step test is a simple test of exercise capacity for children with cystic fibrosis, but no data have been reported regarding its usefulness in adults or its prognostic value. Holland et al. determined the feasibility of the 3-minute step test in adults with cystic fibrosis and whether test performance was associated with 12-month clinical outcomes. They found that desaturation during the 3-minute step test was associated with long-term pulmonary deterioration and more hospital days in adults with cystic fibrosis. This test may be useful for screening patients with moderate to severe cystic fibrosis who require increased intervention and monitoring. Next is the paper, Factors That Delay COPD Detection in the General Elderly Population by Hori et al. The objective of this study was to identify factors that delay COPD detection. They conducted a cross-sectional study of elderly COPD patients and healthy subjects in rural Japan. They measured respiratory and physical function, walking ability, and quality of life. 
Spirometry was performed in 408 subjects, who were divided into groups whose FEV1 over FVC ratio was less than 70%, and those whose FEV1 over FVC ratio was greater than or equal to 70%. Variables reflecting instantaneous walking ability were significantly inferior in the airway obstruction group, but there were no significant differences in six-minute walk test or in quality of life. The authors conclude that walking endurance, quality of life, and proximal muscle strength in the extremities of patients with COPD were well preserved, which prevented detection of COPD and hampered the subject's motivation for seeking medical care. In consequence, lack of awareness impeded the early detection of COPD. Spirometry is much easier to conduct than physical function tests, so spirometry screening programs are recommended for early stage COPD detection and staging. In patients with COPD, early detection and rapid treatment are essential to prevent its progression and exacerbations. Hori and colleagues conducted a cross-sectional study of elderly COPD patients and healthy subjects to identify factors that delay COPD detection. Interestingly, walking duration, quality of life, and proximal muscle strength in the extremities of patients with COPD were well preserved. This prevented COPD detection and hampered motivation to seek medical care. The authors correctly recommend that spirometry should be used for COPD detection. The effects of flow on airway pressure during nasal high-flow oxygen therapy is by Park and colleagues. The objective of this study was to determine the relationship between flow and pressure with a nasal high-flow oxygen therapy system. The authors invited patients scheduled for elective cardiac surgery to participate. Measurements were performed with nasal high-flow oxygen at flows of 30, 40, and 50 liters per minute, both with the patient's mouth open and closed. Pressures were recorded over one minute of breathing and average flows were calculated via simple averaging. With the mouth closed, the mean airway pressures at 30, 40, and 50 liters per minute were 1.93, 2.58, and 3.31 centimeters of water, respectively. There was a positive linear relationship between flow and pressure. The authors conclude that the mean nasal pharyngeal pressure during nasal high-flow oxygen increases as flow increases. Nasal high-flow oxygen therapy increases the mean nasopharyngeal airway pressure in adults, but the relationship between flow and pressure is not well defined. Park and colleagues determined the relationship between flow and pressure with a nasal high-flow oxygen therapy system. Not surprisingly, they found that the mean nasopharyngeal pressure during nasal high-flow oxygen increases as flow increases. However, the absolute pressures were relatively low and usually less than 5 centimeters of water, even at a flow of 50 liters per minute. Long-term simvastatin attenuates lung injury and oxidative stress in marine acute lung injury models induced by oleic acid and endotoxin, is by Altintas and colleagues.
The objective was to investigate the effects of simvastatin on oxidative stress and lung histopathology in two marine models of ALI induced by oleic acid and endotoxin. The mice were randomly divided into two groups. One received 2 mg per kilogram per day intraperitoneal simvastatin for 15 days. Then the groups were further divided into three, which received saline, oleic acid, or endotoxin. Four hours after inducing ALI, the authors obtained lung samples for histopathology analysis. Myeloperoxidase, glutathione, and malondialdehyde measurement. Endotoxin and oleic acid lung injury increased tissue myeloperoxidase, decreased tissue glutathione, and increased tissue malondialdehyde compared to the control group. Simvastatin decreased myeloperoxidase only in the oleic acid group. Simvastatin increased glutathione and lowered malondialdehyde in both the endotoxin and oleic acid groups. Histopathology revealed that simvastatin protected the lung tissue in both ALI models, but the protection was greater in the endotoxin group. The authors conclude that pretreatment with simvastatin decreased the severity of ALI in oleic acid and endotoxin ALI models by decreasing inflammation and oxidative stress. The pathophysiology of acute lung injury is characterized by a severe inflammatory response and endothelial dysfunction. To investigate the effects of simvastatin on oxidative stress and lung histopathology, Altintus et al. evaluated its use in two marine models of ALI. They found that pretreatment with simvastatin decreased the severity of ALI in oleic acid and endotoxin ALI models by decreasing inflammation and oxidative stress. As this was an animal model, the clinical implications of these findings remain to be determined. Our final original research paper is CPAP decreases lung hyperinflation in patients with stable COPD by Lopez et al. The objective of this study was to determine the impact and duration of impact of COPD on hyperinflation and airway resistance in patients with stable COPD. In a case series, 21 patients underwent CPAP at 8 centimeters of water for 15 minutes, then whole body plethysmography immediately after, and at 15 and 30 minutes after CPAP. The cohort's mean FEV1 was 41% of predicted. Residual volume, functional residual capacity, total lung capacity, the ratio of residual volume to total lung capacity, and airway resistance decreased after CPAP and had not significantly changed at 15 minutes, but had returned to baseline at 30 minutes. The authors conclude that, in patients with severe to very severe but stable COPD, CPAP reduces lung volumes and airway resistance for 15 minutes, but the lung volumes return to baseline by 30 minutes. Dynamic hyperinflation caused by expiratory flow limitation increases resting functional residual capacity in many COPD patients. Lopes et al. evaluated the impact and duration of CPAP on hyperinflation and airway resistance in patients with stable COPD. 
They found that CPAP reduces lung volumes and airway resistance for 15 minutes, but that lung volumes return to baseline by 30 minutes. Thus, CPAP may be beneficial when the therapy is in place, but is unlikely to confer continued benefit after removal. We are pleased to publish the 37th Donald F. Egan Scientific Memorial Lecture, The Mechanical Ventilator, Past, Present, and Future, by Cass Merrick. We are also pleased to publish the 26th Philip Kittredge Memorial Lecture, COPD Heterogeneity, What This Will Mean in Practice, by Renard. This month's case reports are on the subjects of iatrogenic reactive airways dysfunction syndrome, aspiration via congenital bronchiosophageal fistula after lobectomy, and extracorporeal membrane oxygenation in a patient with tracheal dihysine following slide tracheoplasty. This month's teaching cases are recurrent pneumonia due to congenital bronchiosophageal fistula and of a puzzling bronchial trifurcation. To receive the contents of this and past issues of the journal, visit our website at www.rcjournal.com. There you can also subscribe to receive podcasts of future issues. Thank you.